And I, I confess that I was a little bit inebriated the first time I watched that episode. And I really, I had to go back and rewind it. I was like, did he just say we could build a fucking starship now? Why aren't we building starships now if we could build a starship now? Well, I want to start out today by saying that this was probably one of my favorite episodes to do because this was a planetarium presentation at one point, and we've kind of altered it and beefed it up a little bit, added some more detail for this program. This was really kind of the thing, because this is really the genesis of what gave us this idea to do something like this, was, um, I think... This was your first presentation you did at the planetarium, right? It was my first hour-long presentation. Uh, they were originally called Colorado Skies, where you would kind of tie in information about the Colorado night sky and then kind of get in-depth on a, on a different topic. I think uh, the Fisk Planetarium now refers to them as going further or a closer look or something like that. They've kind of changed it around because people were doing presentations you know, people were given free reign as presenters to present on whatever topics they want, and people weren't really tying it into Colorado Skies, so I think for that reason they changed the title of the series from Colorado Skies to something else. But I think a little bit of background, like, before you gave that first presentation, you presented this to me over Skype. I did. And kind of gave me a little breakdown and to be honest, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. But when you gave it to me, I was so blown away. Um, and being like an avid podcast listener that I am, when I when you gave it to me, it kind of it lit a spark and kind of planted a seed in my head that I thought this could be something that outside of the realm of presenting it at the planetarium, it could be something that you could do in the form of a podcast. Um, and so when you and I had the opportunity to work together more on this, that's kind of where the genesis of this idea came from. That's great. I didn't know that, but looking back on it, the idea to do a podcast and convert some of these planetarium presentations into podcast form uh, was your idea, and I give you full credit on that. So I, I also felt very strongly when you made the suggestion that we do a, a podcast that this would not have been an ideal episode one. I think this was something that we're kind of worked our way up to. And in the context, I, I think it's uh, interesting material. I think it's good content. And it's something that a lot of people aren't aware of in space history. With our three-part series on the space race, at least a lot of people could tell you, yeah, I know that Neil Armstrong was the first man to land on the moon, or I know that Yuri Gagarin was the first man to go into space. This is a really obscure chapter in space history and Cold War history, and I'm just fascinated by it. I could talk uh, endlessly about it, so I'm really excited to be here doing this after talk. On a side note, wanted to mention that we have Alpha Millennium that we're drinking this evening. It's a Imperial Pale Ale, and 
It's made by Hop Valley Brewing Company. Do we know where that is? I think it's out of Oregon. Eugene, perhaps. Eugene. Reading the bottle here. Uh, Eugene, Oregon. You're absolutely right. Cheers. Cheers. So, yeah, where to begin on Project Orion? There's a lot that I could say about it. I first learned about it actually during an episode of Carl Sagan's Cosmos, where he talks about a lot of theoretical designs for spaceships and even starships, which you know we might one day build. We have yet to construct a starship either in the form of a robotic probe or uh, let alone a manned spacecraft. So uh, Carl Sagan mentioned an Orion starship as a, as a possible design that had been considered. And he, he talks about it very briefly. I believe the episode title, if you ever, if you guys want to find it, is uh, Travels in Space and Time. And that's uh, on Carl Sagan's Cosmos. So he mentions Project Orion very briefly, and he says these other designs for spaceships, you know, this design from the British Interplanetary Society is powered by nuclear fusion, but we don't yet have the technology for a nuclear fusion, but we could build an Orion starship now with existing technology. And then he moves on and starts talking about something else, and I, I confess that I was a little bit inebriated the first time I watched that episode, and I really, I had to go back and rewind it. I was like, did he just say we could build a fucking starship now? Why aren't we building starships now if we could build a starship now? And that led me down this uh, rabbit hole that culminated in me doing this presentation. Can you go, because uh, a lot of people will have seen or watched sci-fi and hear the term starship. And they really don't get the distinction of well, what, because people know what a, a spaceship is or whatever, but, uh, uh, you know, the different names. Okay, that that would be good. I, I give our listeners a lot of credit, so I, I never want to be too redundant, but <clears throat> starships are a big deal. And you, you actually asked me during one of our after talks, you said if the invention of the telescope in uh, hundreds of years ago in Europe was a huge paradigm shift in astronomy, what would the next paradigm shift in astronomy be? And I don't really know the answer to that. I don't know how things are going to transpire, but I think starships would be a game changer. And so a starship is a spacecraft that can traverse interstellar space, that can leave the solar system behind, the sun and all the planets that orbit it, and travel to another star nearby, or perhaps very far away, and visit exoplanets in orbit around that star. And it's such a big deal, it's such a game changer, and a starship is so different than any other spaceships that we've built before that it's uh, it's just a, a revolutionary concept, literally reaching out and, and reaching the stars and grasping the stars. It's a big deal because stars are trillions of miles away, and so much further away than any of the planets that orbit our sun. So a mission to Mars will be a big deal if we finally do it. But as we say in the episode, Mars is like over 100 million miles away, whereas the nearest stars to us are trillions of miles mm. away. And that's uh, it's, it's mind-boggling to think of traveling distances that are that vast and that Freeman Dyson 
was sitting there with his little slide rule and doing calculations and writing papers and feasibility studies on converting Project Orion uh, to a starship. Now, I think we said in the episode also that Freeman Dyson, Freeman Dyson admitted in the paper, he's like, this is not really the ideal way to travel to the stars and hopefully we'll come up with some sort of technology in the future that will allow us to do it more efficiently, but we could. And some people even floated the idea of Orion being a sort of interstellar arc mm. that could carry, uh, like Noah's Ark, and an interstellar arc could potentially save humanity in the event of some sort of mass extinction event, if an asteroid slammed into the Earth or if a supervolcano erupted tomorrow and clouded the skies with ash for years and years and killed, you know, all plant life and animal life on Earth, that this could be a sort of plan B for the human race. if our sun went supernova. Right, which isn't going to happen, of course, for billions of years. But, yeah. So, in that event, we wouldn't have any choice but to work with existing technology. Mm -hmm. I also floated in the episode the idea that Project Orion could be a good way to deflect an asteroid. And our plans for... we There's some theoretical plans for what humanity would do in the event that an asteroid was on a collision course with Earth, and it was a massive asteroid. I believe Chelyabinsk was the place in Russia where very recently, I think a year or two ago, a massive piece of space rock slammed into the atmosphere and mostly burned up. And I, I say massive, it wasn't that massive, but large enough to you know, do some damage. And so... The, I believe we have identified 90, 90% of the really sizable asteroids that could cause mass extinction events rather than just wipe out a city. You know, asteroids that could alter the course of life on Earth and cause you know, a mass extinction event. There are only about 10% of those unaccounted for, which is a scary thought. But if we discover tomorrow that something like that is going to slam into the Earth an Orion starship might be the best way to deflect it because we're talking about Orion spacecraft. We're talking about something unbelievably massive with uh, very powerful engines, if you can even call them engines. And so that could potentially nudge an asteroid off off its course. Mm. So is has there ever been... Have there been conversations... By engineers, uh, just the thought of maybe doing smaller pilot projects to try to build something like this in space, to create an Orion, put everything together in pieces up in space to deal, to like circumvent the weight problem of getting it outside of our... Absolutely. Um, Yes, there have been discussions about building some sort of uh, Project Orion that could depart from outer space. Of course, the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty bans the explosion of nuclear devices in outer space. So you would either have to find some sort of loophole, or perhaps if China, Russia, and the United States all sort of collaborated, it wouldn't be seen so much as a a threat to any foreign government. So yes, that's absolutely something that's been discussed. And I think Carl Sagan said, trying to think of how he phrased it, that an Orion spacecraft is the best 
the best use of nuclear weapons that he can think of, but provided that those spacecraft don't depart from very near to the Earth. Hmm. So, hmm. what are your, do you have anything else in your notes there? Well, yeah, I, just a weird, it's funny that on the backdrop of this, the kind of the, the theme of this episode being about the military's intervention in space and that it really it it boils down to Orion and everything that came out of the Cold War and World War Two that really the, the byproduct of it was as far as what how it relates to space is Project Orion yeah and I confess that there might have been other aspects of the military's role in the space program, past, present, and future, that we could have touched on. But I just think Project Orion is so fascinating. And it was, I've actually got a note card right here from the planetarium presentation that I gave. I was taking notes. One of the things we have linked in the description, both for the after talk, as well as the episode itself, we always try to cite our sources here at Universe University. So I, I read the book, I think, it's, I think it's just called Project Orion, and it's by George Dyson, who is Freeman Dyson's son. So if you're looking for material on that, if you want to go really in-depth, I would recommend that book. And so I was taking some notes as I, as I uh, researched for this episode, and there's Bruno Augenstein from the RAND Corporation, said that Project Orion was a translation a translation of a sword into a plowshare. And mm. that that's a very interesting analogy. Essentially taking the Cold War and nuclear weapons, these you know, nuclear weapons being this tool designed for warfare and changing it into something that could be used for peaceful purposes. Essentially kind of taking mi- technology that was military-centered and turning it into something that was good for civilization. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and so I thought that was that was very interesting to me. And Dyson said that there were, Freeman Dyson said that there were people in the United States Air Force that were very enthusiastic about the project and kind of liked the idea of the United States Air Force having a spacecraft just for interplanetary exploration. And as I mentioned in the episode, the militaries of the world have often participated in exploration Mm -hmm. and that that's not necessarily something that the United States military or any military in the world is opposed to. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things in reading this book, they said that there there were reports in like the United States Air Force where they were saying, is there a military value to traveling to Mars or Jupiter or Saturn? Mm. And the funny thing was, is they said, well, if the Russians travel there, I guess we should be there. And it's kind of typical of this bizarre Cold War mentality. It's like, well, if the Russians are landing people on Mars, I guess we should be doing it too. That was what motivated the space race was, well, if the Russians are developing their space technology, we should develop ours too. But of course, that that brings you into a different conversation where Russians landing on Mars is not a military threat to us, but Russia building a base on the moon 
or creating technology in outer space, perhaps with nuclear weapons platforms and things like that, that could very much be a threat. And that was the concern when Sputnik was flying overhead, was would Sputnik or any future Russian spacecraft have nuclear weapons on board? So it wasn't quite as, the space race wasn't quite as vague as, well, because they're doing it, we should do it too. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, a baser sort of drive for competition. There were legitimate military threats. And in the episode, we have a clip of John F. Kennedy talking about those, you know, those very real military threats that people were concerned about in the early 1960s coming from outer space. A real keeping up with the Korolevs. Keeping up with the Korolevs. Korolevs. Although, I, <laughs> that was just the, the closest russian name i could think of to go along with that that's funny yeah um so just talking about you know we really was very orion centric throughout the episode but you brought up the x-37 as being the air force one of the air force's uh first spacecraft absolutely and as much as i love jabbering about project orion and as much as i will probably direct our conversation back to that i think Overall, the role of the United States military in the present and in the future in outer space is something that's that's very relevant today. So the X-37 is this fascinating little piece of machinery, and I refer to it as a space drone because I don't know what other analogy would be more appropriate than a space drone. It looks very much like the space shuttle. If To the untrained eye, if you really hadn't seen it before, you would see a picture of this thing and say, oh, it's the space shuttle. And you'd say, no, there's, there's no people flying on board this spacecraft. It's unmanned. But you can tell that they copied the design right down to the T, probably because it had already sort of proven itself. We know that this technology can work and they didn't have to design something from scratch. It goes on these very long dur- duration missions. Uh, I, I believe it's like a year or longer it stays up there in orbit, which is pretty impressive, you know, that there's this little vehicle that can stay up there for as long as it does. There were some, all, you know, all sorts of speculation and conspiracy theories. One of them mentioned in the episode is that it snatches up satellites and kidnaps satellites, bringing them back to Earth. There's no, you know, we don't know that that's the case. There's no evidence that that's the case. Another person suggested that it could be used to take photographs of the Chinese space station in orbit around the Earth. This is the peculiar thing about China's space station. They have a space station, and we've we've never seen any photographs of it. Like, in current use? Oh, yeah. China has a space station. Uh, I, I don't know. You say in current use. I think they've done a couple of little experiments. So, they have something up there uh, I don't know if it's currently crewed. The International Space Station is occupied continuously around the clock for, for years. So I don't know if they're Chinese astronauts or, excuse me, taikonauts. That's what they call astronauts in China. I don't know if they're taikonauts in the Chinese space station right now. Uh, but yeah, they've been dabbling with space stations for a while. China has made enormous progress since, I believe, they sent their first a person into outer space in the early 2000s. I want to say 2003. So in that short span of time, they've uh, since landed uh, a craft on the moon. They have uh, constructed a space station, at least one space station. Um, 
Tiandong, I think, is, is how you pronounce that. I'm sure I'm butchering the Chinese language there. But so we don't know a lot about it. There are, you know, diagrams and things like that. But there was speculation that maybe we were spying on them and taking pictures of this uh, space station. Uh, unfortunately, uh, China was one of the nations that was kind of, I don't want to say excluded, but certainly not included in the development of the International Space Station. Mm. So I don't know if they felt offended by that or not. But uh, So yeah, there's, there's a, actually we should do an, an entire episode on the Chinese space program. So thank you for getting me off on that tangent. But yeah, the X-37, it's, and it, it might not have a purpose at all. It might be just something we developed just in case we need that kind of technology. We might just be up there testing it, doing routine little little training missions. And I think that theory about the Chinese space station uh, was disproven when it was revealed that the X-37's orbit and the orbit of the of China's space station are not really the same. Mm. Would they, is, were there any thoughts that there were partner nations that they would have been working with? At least, or, or just in general, does the China Chinese... Uh, space agency work with partner nations? I think they would be open to it, but for all intents and purposes, I don't I don't really believe that they do. Mm-hmm. The United States and Russia have a long history of cooperating with each other uh, that predates the International Space Station by quite a bit. And so I think China would be open to it, but the thing about uh, China, much like the uh, older Soviet Union, it's uh, it's a communist country, and in communist countries, regardless of, you know, it's not the same as North Korea. It's not a completely uh, brutal dictatorship where everyone's locked inside and starving to death, at least not right now. You could argue under uh, Mao Zedong it was, mm. but any, you know, any communist country is extremely secretive with the information that they put out about their space program, about and of course, space programs linked to national defense. So if you know how Russia or China or the United States designs uh, rockets, then you know something about how they would design intercontinental ballistic missiles. And so I think for those reasons, China is very secretive about their space program. So I think they would absolutely be open to collaboration in the future, but I think for the moment they're it's very secretive. But ironically, again, we can tackle a whole episode on the, the Chinese space program, but ironically, their spacecraft that they send astronauts up in look remarkably like the Soyuz. So that is to say it was it was reverse engineered from, from the Soyuz. So... It's not really an original design, they're, right. and they're definitely, like any nation would, they're building on the foundation of space travel that the United States and Russia have already created. Well, that's kind of their model. They, they generally allow some of the more progressive nations to create the, the trademarks and things like that, and then they just they kind of take them and run with them to create. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, it wouldn't be the first time that China has taken a design made by someone in a foreign country and adopted it as their own. Yeah. Um, So was it the Russian space agency that had the uh, spy craft that instead of having 
uh, like a drone camera, they put people in the craft. Yes, that was that was the Almaz, and it's uh, it was a space station, and it was actually the first space station that anybody ever sent up, and it was for military purposes. I it gets confusing because uh, Salyut was the official name, and you have Salyut, I think one, two, three, four, multiple Salyut stations that uh, went up, and multiple crews that ran them. The Russians when this is actually a question someone asked me the other day, which I thought was fascinating, was, is the space race still a race, or did it just kind of end? Mm. And it's a complex question. I love the question, but it's, it's complex to really answer that, because the simple answer is, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, we decisively defeated the Soviets in this competition. And we know we know now that the Soviets were very actively engaged in trying to develop the technology to send people to the moon. So it was a race. But they really shifted gears after after we landed man on the moon, we being the United States. The Soviet Union really shifted gears and said, all right, space stations are where, it, where it's at, and space stations need to be developed, and that's going to be the technology of the future. And they started sending up uh, lots of space stations. The Russians have, have constructed more space stations than any other country in history, and by a wide margin. And the United States responded with Skylab, which is the space station we, we sent up a little bit after the Russians started doing their Salyut program. And, and But, you know, there's no question about it when it comes to space stations. We were second. The Russians were first. So elaborate on that. Does that mean... Because I think, and I'm very naive in this, I guess, that a lot of people think that there's just one space station that the United States and Russia share for laboratories. Today. Today. Well, it's the International Space Station. And you know, we say it's international. The only countries that are really sending humans into space are the United States, Russia, and China right now. America and Russia were huge elements in building the the International Space Station, but there's a European space agency. There are there's a Japanese space agency. Agency with its own space station or No, no. Okay. None, none of these entities so have terrestrial... their own. Yeah, I, I say space agency, you know, they're developing technology, they're they're training people, they're you know, they're they're actively involved. So, you know, like I said, only three nations sending astronauts into space. But these other space agencies that I speak of have had astronauts that have gone to the International Space Station. So the International Space Station is not just American and Russian astronauts hanging out up there. Chris Hatfield was uh, is a Canadian astronaut and prob- probably one of my favorite contemporary astronauts. I think Scott Kelly gets a lot of press. One of my colleagues at the planetarium got to meet Scott Kelly the other day. But I, I think... I think he's a little overrated, quite frankly. But that that's just me. But yeah, uh, the International Space Station was a collaboration of international partners. It's not a bi-national space station. It's an international space station. Right, but the, the question that I was getting at was that there aren't other, I guess, space stations? And, and like national space stations that specific countries go to to do their own particular research? You are correct. During the Cold War, 
the United States had a space station, Skylab. The Russians had Almaz or Salyut, which are the, the same thing. So that was a Cold War thing. Today, we have a Chinese space station and we have the International Space Station. And those are the only two space stations in the past several years, really, that have been inhabited by human astronauts. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you, I wrote down Red Dawn because I just an interesting factoid. Uh, not the not the classic, not the good one. Mm. Uh, but the the older Red. No, no, no. Excuse. Me. Yeah, no. The newer Red Dawn. The remake. The remake. Yes. Uh, they had originally intended uh, for the the invading army to be that of the Chinese government. I heard about that, and they I think they changed it and re-edited a lot of it at the last minute because they realized it would kind of harm box office sales in China. That, and uh, so the, the reason why I heard about this is because uh, there was a, kind of a... I don't know what you would call it, like a a journalistic piece on the what kind of control China has in America's economies and and sure what we put out into the world and things like that. And that was one of the things that they brought up as an example that the entire film was done that the bad guys were quote unquote the Chinese. And at the very end, they had to spend like a million dollars to go back in and doctor everything so that it was the North Koreans. Right. All the way to the point of like having to, on all the helicopters, like... Change the insignia. Photoshop in new flags and... Absolutely. And and even like the uniforms and stuff like that. Just a... And I'm not... I think you talk about it at the very beginning of uh, the last episode where you talk about... um, what the Americans thought of uh, what war was going to look like with uh, an invading force. And that, that just came up in my mind. I started thinking about that. So Ted Taylor is not someone that you that normally gets a whole lot of coverage. And I hadn't actually heard of him until you talked about him. There are some interesting interviews with Ted Taylor. I believe he has since died. Miraculously, Freeman Dyson, I believe, is in his 90s right now and still uh, alive and and very much cognizant, still doing his work. So, yeah, Ted Taylor worked for General Atomics during the Cold War. I don't don't know if our listeners can hear it, but I'm just a little bit distracted because it's raining very hard outside. It sounds like we're making popcorn, but we're not making popcorn. So hopefully we can clean that up and... In post-production. So if I seem distracted, that's the reason why. Anyway, Ted Taylor was really, he was a genius at, at what he did. And it was very specific. I think it was designing nuclear weapons and I think more specifically smaller sized nuclear weapons. And there was sort of a, a nuclear weapons uh, bonanza in the, in the 1950s where both the United States and the Soviet Union were building all kinds of atomic bombs, hydrogen bombs, bigger bombs, smaller bombs, bombs for different purposes, all the bombs that you could ever need or want. 
to fight a nuclear war with, and then some. And so Project Orion, one of the reasons a lot of the technology is still classified is because it involves the building and design of miniature atomic bombs. And that's exactly the kind of thing that terrorists would want to get their hands on, is teeny tiny little uh, atomic bombs. And I, I believe they said that uh, the nuclear pulse units, which are these miniature atomic bombs that Orion drops out the, you know, the bottom and goes bam, 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 accelerating it forward, they were about the size of coffee cans. Really? If, if you can imagine that. So, and that, that's why, again, a lot of Project Orion technology remains classified. And that was the sort of thing that Ted Taylor did. And that was why he was recruited to work on Project Orion. Old school Folgers coffee cans. <laughs> right. Big old coffee cans. But, yeah, Ted Taylor, what, what can I say about him? He was a visionary. He was... Uh, I think really intelligent guy, but he also had an overactive imagination. So there were some people who worked on Project Orion and said, this is a fun project for us to work on, but we don't really ever think this is going to get off the ground because some of the, some aspects of this are too outlandish, too ridiculous. But Ted Taylor was someone who believed in the project to the extent that he was convinced that it was actually going to happen, not just because he had an active imagination, but because they were, they were actively developing it, and, and it could be built using existing technology. One of the things that I've written down here in my notes is uh, I read an article the other day that said the United States government spent $10 million developing Project Orion over a period of years, and that's that's incredible. And so the United States government certainly does waste money from time to time and certainly does develop projects that never happen but you can you can imagine how that in and of itself and how long the project was in development i think somewhere around 5 years was enough to get a lot of these project orion physicists and engineers to start saying well hey it it it's, seems to make sense that this is going to to happen sooner or later and uh, in my notes here $10 million in those days is the equivalent of $85 million today. Which is crazy because even today, uh, as far as you know, aircraft platforms in the military, if you just look at one and how much money is spent per day in just repair and rework and research, it's way, way exceeds that. And the, the, those are for not even like the crazy black kind of aircraft but just like actual like how much they're spending on the joint strike fighters probably somewhere near that much money yeah and and so again granted that bureaucracy exists and sometimes the united states government and the united united states military wastes money but they were they're very serious about developing project orion yeah um one of the things that I was going to say about Ted Taylor was that, you know, get, getting inside his mind and his imagination, he always says that, uh, he always said that he had dreams about Project Orion and what it would look like at takeoff. And he always said that it would be the most amazing, incredible, awe-inspiring sight you could ever imagine. Imagine one atomic bomb after another going off again and again and again as this uh, 
4,000 ton vehicle accelerates into the upper atmosphere. Mm. It's, uh, it's, inc- it's an incredible thing to imagine. And that we had the technology and we almost built the thing. Yeah, they never quite... Uh, what was the title of the movie that came out like two years ago? The, the little rom-com about space. Um, I, th- I vaguely uh, recall I what you're know. talking about. It had uh, J-Law in it. Jennifer Lawrence. And oh, yeah. We saw that movie in theaters. Passengers, Passengers. was the title. But something that like Project Orion is what I would imagine, you know, what they were trying to model that craft after. We talked about starships earlier. Passengers is very much a movie where starships are a big part of that. Yeah. Big part of the narrative. It's not a nuclear bomb-powered Orion starship, but it's definitely a starship, and definitely a starship meant to hold a, a very large crew of hundreds, if not thousands of people in the film. Well, and it's it's just it's interesting that it's the way that they truncate the storyline where they don't explain how it got there. Right, right. Your focus is supposed to be on the on the romance of. Well, it's just that that they're there and that yeah. they're on that mission. It's, it's basically the movie Titanic in outer space. <laughs> uh, does anyone die at the end? Let's let's look back to it because we can still spoil it for the listeners that that haven't seen the movie. I forget. I think it turned. They turn it into like a jungle, don't they? Well, I think they have to like. So they're in hypersleep, and uh, they both end up waking up from hypersleep, and then they have to like live on the spacecraft because they woke up too early from hypersleep. So they kind of have to live the rest of their lives on the spacecraft rather than getting to their destination because it takes so long to get to their destination. But I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to turn this into a, a movie review of Passengers because there, there are far more interesting things I have to talk about. So I think this is actually uh, at least I, I think the the general theme of this episode is like the military in space. Right. And this is this is definitely one of those realms that is very story rich because we we did all of this without ever tapping into the the story rich area of area 51 you know and and the amount of research that went on there that does have implications in space and things like that um and so i, I wanted to use that as a segue because i we kind of had conversations about how we want to format the show and it, it's it's an ever kind of evolving thing sure we we use a lot of books for our uh, references right obviously and, and this episode is no exception so there's a, a very uh comprehensive book on area 51 that you have read and that i've been kind of slowly working my way through and we've we've thought about the idea of just doing a whole episode about area 51 of course whatever it is that's going on at area 51 it's not all space related necessarily and it's it's either not all alien related or it's not alien related at all depending on which side you come down on if you're more of a conspiracy theorist then you would say there's there's alien technology at area 51 if you're more of a skeptic you would say uh, aliens have never visited the earth and that they're doing something at area 51 but you know but regardless it was even if you're not a tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist, there was very significant research being done 
into stuff like what we're talking about. Oh yeah. Project and, Orion and, and very like now we probably know about more of them, but at the time it would have been con- construed to be like a black project where Yeah, and this was this was all done under sort of a shroud of secrecy. Yeah, there there's so much that I could say about Project Orion. There was a time when NASA sort of briefly considered maybe adopting Project Orion. You talked about, you, you actually mentioned earlier, smaller versions of Project Orion. And there are all sorts of, you know, the interstellar arc is probably the largest conceivable Orion spacecraft. And the, the smallest versions of Project Orion are, they, they have these, NASA considered using these little smaller Orion versions that could hold 15 or 20 people and you could put it on top of a Saturn V rocket, and a Saturn V rocket would be powerful enough to boost it up into outer space and perhaps do a little little mission to Mars or even a mission to Jupiter using a, a much smaller version of this technology. And apparently Werner von Braun kind of expressed some interest and said, hey, this is something we should look into. That never took place, never got off the ground. But what are the lift comparisons between the Saturn V and, you know, SpaceX's BFR? Uh, SpaceX's BFR, which has not been constructed yet, it, st- it stands for uh, Big Falcon Rocket. If we want, if we want to be, if we want to be uh, discreet in our use of language, so the BFR. If it is built and constructed successfully, if it works the way Elon Musk wants it to work, is going to be um, drastically more powerful and more efficient in the number of people that it can take on board, as well as the payloads that it can carry. It's going to be head and shoulders above anything ever made, and and that is to say, if you looked at a bar graph of how you know how much can the Saturn V lift in terms of payloads and human beings how much can the soyuz lift how much you know can this that or the other lift and then put it alongside the bfr you're left with a bar graph with lots of little tiny bars and one ginormous rectangle that is very 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 tall so So in in all aspects that could be you know put together with statistics it's head and shoulders above pretty much anything that we've ever made I in do- theory when it, if it if it is ever constructed yes head and shoulders above anything ever constructed to date now if you start comparing the BFR to Project Orion there are definitely indisputably Project Orion designs that are infinitely more powerful than Elon Musk's BFR but if we're just talking about uh, spacecraft that we've constructed thus far the BFR would be enormous mm enormous and we're, go- we're actually going to uh, talk about that in one of our upcoming episodes on Elon Musk and his fascination with Mars so we're going to address the BFR in more detail in the future mm-hmm. so keep an eye out for that do you have any parting thoughts on Project Orion or I, I could talk about it all day long I'm, I'm looking at my um, note card 
that I created when I was doing research for my planetarium presentation. And there's uh, a lot of really interesting information here. To give you an idea of how, just how efficient Project Orion is, or just how efficient nuclear technology is in general, the fuel cost for uh, a super Orion, super Orion is the term for something that could be an Orion starship or a very large interplanetary craft, could be as little as five cents per pound. Now, that is staggering when one considers just how expensive it is to send things into outer space, to send people or payloads into outer space. And that's see, that's incredible. And one of the other things that I was going to say, this was the thing that really captivated my imagination, was Freeman Dyson's sort of theoretical calculations about interstellar spacecraft and Orion starships. He thought of, of the idea of creating a pusher plate. The pusher plate, of course, is this large piece at the back that shields the crew from the nuclear blast. It's a thousand tons of solid steel. Could be larger on future uh, Orion starships or you know other larger designs. Dyson thought about constructing a pusher plate made out of uranium and the nuclear explosions that would take place would, I guess the neutrons would make plutonium. Mm -hmm. I, from do you, Are you familiar more with the physics of that? Well, I mean, the, the materials themselves are so similar that the only thing that's different is the, the sharing of all those things. So over the course of time, uh, elements like that over the course of time, uranium could be changed into... Right. Neutrons could change uranium into plutonium. Yes. But the idea was, during this long journey to Alpha Centauri or a neighboring star system, you would use the uranium pusher plate to make plutonium. And then when you got to Alpha Centauri, you would have plutonium, and you could use that as a power source for an entire colony mm. on one of the planets orbiting Alpha Centauri. That's like that's crazy. That mm -hmm. that's mind blowing to me. But Freeman Dyson was there writing these reports, doing his calculations, and I think, you know, I think we should have gone forward with Project Orion. I'm actually a big advocate of it and I think it's kind of it's kind of sad that the technology to explore the solar system in person exists and we haven't pursued it. That being said, there's the concern of nuclear fallout. If you mm -hmm. launched an Orion spacecraft from the Earth, you would have, uh, let me, I've got this in my notes as well, you would have potentially half a megaton of nuclear fallout. Now, there was discussion, there was discussion about whether you could create cleaner, and I use that air quotes, cleaner nuclear bombs. It's kind of like talking about clean coal, but you could reduce some of that nuclear fallout because the nuclear uh, pulse units that are dropped out the back of Project Orion uh, spacecraft, they're not uh, not very big atomic bombs, and so there's not a lot of fallout. This is a crazy figure to think about. The reason everybody was moving forward with Project Orion, even though it would put nuclear fallout into the atmosphere, is that when we were testing nuclear weapons, there was about 100 megatons of fallout being put into the Earth's atmosphere every year. 
mm. by Soviet and American nuclear tests. Mm. So the idea was, well, half a megaton is really not that much since we're already putting 100 megatons of nuclear fallout into the atmosphere right. every single year. And that's uh, that's staggering. And it, and it sheds some light on why the nuclear test ban treaty became a thing because that, that fallout, they, there's legitimate thought that the risk of cancer or just cancer in general has increased drastically since we started doing that just mm-hmm. worldwide, that all this fallout is in the atmosphere or was in the atmosphere at the time. Obviously, I guess there's a, a rate of decay. But so that's, uh, that's a very interesting reason that, that Orion was sort of never pursued and I, I get that. I understand that concern. That was a concern that Freeman Dyson had as well. That weighed very heavily on his mind, and he wanted to he he wanted to work to just reduce the amount of fallout that would be contained in these little uh, nuclear pulse units, which uh, which I think is is great. I think there's also you know the, there's no way around it that nuclear technology is a very highly politicized form of technology, and disasters like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and Fukushima have led a lot of people to say, this is not safe. We should oppose nuclear technology at all costs. Some people even protest when we launch space probes into outer space to go visit the planets because some of those are powered with plutonium and with tiny little nuclear reactors inside. Some people are that anti-nuclear that launching a, a peaceful space probe to explore the solar system is something that that they would very much show up to protest on the day of the launch. And uh, you know, it's it's up in the air. I don't want to I don't want to be blase about how dangerous nuclear technology is and how dangerous nuclear weapons are. I think that's the dangers of nuclear weapons that persist to this day, and the, the looming threat of nuclear war is something that people don't think about very much in post-Cold War times, but it's very real and very serious, and so I don't want to come across as, as if I'm, I'm not acknowledging that. But that being said, is there a way to use nuclear technology for safe, peaceful, you know, amazing purposes, and I, I think that there is. And France is a country that you don't hear a lot about nuclear disasters happening in France, but a, an enormous amount of their energy with each passing year comes from nuclear power, far more than the United States or most other nations. It's interesting to think that uh, of the implications of what would have happened had Fukushima not happened, because it's such a recent event that it's kind of burned into the consciousness of, of I guess, the, the global population. Like, had it not happened, there might still be that kind of, oh, well, you know, Two Mile Island and all those things happened before the 2000s. And that was, that was we didn't understand as much as we, we know now. But Fukushima happened in, like, 2012 2013 yeah i would would have to google it but yeah absolutely that's something that you know definitely had an effect on the environment obviously had effect on japan and the way they perceive things of course of course i you know i have to say if you are building nuclear power plants right next to the ocean in a place that experiences historically lots of tsunamis 
that's probably not a good idea. Yeah. That's probably not a good idea. And the fact that France isn't experiencing lots of earthquakes and tsunamis might be the reason that, that the French have managed to do nuclear power the way they have. This was actually an interesting little debate that in 2008, John McCain and Barack Obama were kind of at odds on because John McCain said, we can get off our dependence to foreign oil. That was a, that was a big talking point mm-hmm. in the early 2000s is our dependence on foreign oil. And he said, we could have a country that's much more energy efficient if we just build more nuclear power plants. So under a McCain presidency, if John McCain had won the 2008 election, we would have lots more nuclear power plants ar- around the country. Maybe. maybe. maybe yeah, maybe, maybe not. But I know that that was actually even in this in the 2016 election, there were discussions from Trump bringing the use of micro nuclear reactors to use smaller sized reactors. I to, hadn't heard that. That's to, interesting. To be a more safe version of a nuclear reactor, instead of creating like these gigantic ones, they would use smaller ones. But it, it's funny in America, the trend seems to be going towards getting rid of nuclear power, which is. I don't, in my viewpoint, kind of unfortunate because I think it is a burgeoning. Uh, it's it's always been kind of burgeoning since the 1950s uh, form of energy that we could use outside of other sources outside of fossil fuels. Which yeah. you know you could you could talk about nuclear energy and say it's really dangerous. You could have these potentially disastrous effects on the community in which the nuclear reactor is and that it's it's just not worth taking the risk but we're very much at a point ironically now with fossil fuels where and and again I said this at the beginning it's very highly politicized so there's there's no way of escaping the political debate you we could say that it shouldn't be politicized we should just talk about the facts but you know there's there's no escaping it that left-wing politics there's a strong anti-nuclear movement but ironically, we've gotten to a point now with fossil fuels, there's a very anti-fossil fuel movement. So anti, you know, being anti-nuclear weapons or anti-nuclear power was something that people on the, the left wing of the political spectrum have been protesting for decades and decades. Right. But the discussion of global warming is something that's relatively new. And so there's a very strong movement against fossil fuels Mm -hmm. and so if you don't do fossil fuels and you don't do nuclear you're you're taking out two enormously powerful and efficient energy sources and saying we absolutely cannot go down this road under any circumstances because it's too disastrous to the planet and and to us and it will result in an, an, an apocalypse potentially that's sort of the narrative that's being pushed and I just, you know, if, if that's genuinely the way you feel, if that's the way any of our listeners feel, I would just say, I hope that, you know, wind, solar, whatever it is mm. that you're proposing to fill the void, I hope that that could be, I hope that will be effective. And well, I'm not convinced that it will, I'm not convinced that that will power the planet. And the un- the unfortunate thing is, is if you rewind back to when Al Gore came out with Inconvenient Truth, that kind of set a bookmark in time in kind of the quote-unquote green movement of energy where people wanted to start creating this green energy. And at the time, the argument for a lot of conservative Republican-minded people was that it was just like kind of this hippy-dippy thing. 
Right. But what really gave them, led credence to their feeling of animosity towards the Green Movement was when there started to uh, the the tax credits and then the government going and putting subsidies towards green uh, technologies where if given, if they were to just behave in the market as competitive sources of energy, they may not have flourished or grown as big as they they, they were going to. Well, uh, you know, Mitt Romney and Fox News were very hard on Barack Obama after Solyndra. I believe Solyndra yeah. was, you know, solar yeah. panel manufacturing and things like that. So that was... That was very much, you know, that was something that was eviscerated. Well, even just looking by at the what's right. going on with Tesla too. I mean, Tesla had a, a very, very hard uphill battle to fight in becoming as as successful as they are. And you know, I think you you raise a good question: is what role? Of course, we're we're becoming a political talk radio show now, but we're, what role should government play in looking at these technologies that are new, innovative? but still emerging and still have a lot of work that needs to be done in order to make them self-sufficient. And so what role should government play in saying, hey, let's let's invest in this. Let's actually do this and see if it can work. But it's always the problem is it's always going to be a gamble. And a lot of things in in capitalism or in innovation for that matter are going to be a gamble. And a gamble by definition is you're aware of the fact that this might not work and this might go horribly, horribly, horribly wrong, but we think that the juice is worth the squeeze mm-hmm. and that the risk is worth the reward. And bringing it full circle, I would say that's very much how I feel about a Project Orion spacecraft is that the things that we could learn mm. about the solar system, and that's, that's a Freeman Dyson quote from one of his letters, you know, there are more things and heaven and earth than are dreamt of in human philosophy. Of course, that comes from a Shakespeare quote. It was a Shakespeare quote that Korolyov used uh, when he was the chief designer of the Soviet space program. But Freeman Dyson says, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in human philosophy, and we shall only find out what they are if we go out there and look for them. And it was Carl Sagan who said, somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known. Mm And I think the exploration of the solar system is something that we should pursue in our lifetimes and beyond. Elon Musk on the uh, the Joe Rogan podcast was, you know, talked about, he talked mostly about artificial intelligence and other subjects, mm-hmm. but when he did get into talking about space, I think Joe Rogan said something to him along the lines of, do you think we can really, like, go to the stars and visit other star systems? And Elon Musk kind of, he shrugged and he said, I think we can at least visit the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn. I think we can at least put people on Mars. He says, I think at minimum we should be able to do that. And I agree wholeheartedly that these are, these, that was what we talked about in our Galileo episode mm-hmm. uh, about these Galilean moons, these massive worlds that are in orbit around Jupiter that we really don't know that much about. These incredible places that exist in the solar system that have have never really been seen before by human eyes at least not up close mm-hmm. well i i th- so i think it's important and i know we want to try to avoid having the political discussion about it but i think it's important because 
they are the micro barriers that are keeping us from being able to get into the research that's needed and the testing to be able to do because in order to learn more about what is what it's going to take to be able to do the things to like make an Orion uh, spacecraft or something like sure. that, we need to study those things. And if if we're kind of uh, demonizing the technology and 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 I wouldn't say demonizing, but just not knowing enough about it, I think nuclear technology is very much demonized and understandably so to yeah. some extent. But I mean, we almost we demonize it so much that you you can't even research it to try to better understand what what its implications are in yeah is there a test bed for how it can actually produce energy for a country or whatever like france is a great example but also ironically enough given current events uh the french are dealing with their own fuel crisis amongst uh i don't know that i would describe it as a fuel crisis but it definitely relates to fossil fuels yeah. very heavily and their, their policies towards it and you're, you're you know you're absolutely right that that france has its own problem and i i think you hit the nail on the head there and hey i i was a, actually ironically it was a political science major in college I, I don't have a degree in astronomy or astrophysics or anything like that so we, we might get even more political in in the future but it's policy, so it's important. It is important, yeah. And I don't ever want to shy away from, at the very least, addressing the politics of space. And I think that's going to be something that's, that's more and more important. And I think the politics of, I was going to say the politics of space, but the politics of nuclear technology at the end of the day were what caused the death of Project Orion. And so I think you hit the nail on the head in saying what we really need is just to be able to be open to new ideas, which traditionally you, you think of as a liberal or progressive thing, but in some cases it's, that's not always the case. And so to be open to new ideas to say, let's be willing to gamble on something now and again to see if that might be a, an effective solution to the problems that we're facing. Right. And at the very least, let's be willing to research something, to gather all the factual data that mm -hmm. we can on this or that. And I think there are a lot of topics that are, we can say that something's politicized. I would say climate change is very politicized. And in me making that, that comment, it's not me saying, I, yeah, it's not me saying I believe in climate change. It's not me saying I don't believe in climate change. It's not me saying that it should be a political debate. It's me just acknowledging that that's the way it is. And we have to work within that framework. And a lot of things are very highly politicized. And that, that I think that is our downfall as human beings and as a species when we look at something and say it's just too it's too politically charged it's too uncomfortable it's too dangerous for us to gather information or have a discussion mm -hmm. on a subject because of the political passions that inflames and that's that's much worse than saying we're not going to pursue a certain kind of technology because we've made a decision not to pursue it. That's saying we're not even going to think about it. We're going to stop thinking. We're going to stop learning. We're going to stop exploring and gathering empirical evidence about it, and we're just going to bury our heads in the sand. And I think that's that's a terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where's where are we going next episode? The next episode, the one we have uh, on the horizon, 
again, we, we're still trying to build our listeners. And so uh, what I've said in the, in the past after talk is if you're listening right now, if you've made it this far, then we, we really just uh, congratulate you because it, it's very time consuming. Our content is very time consuming for uh, all of you as listeners. And we really want to make it worth your while. Going uh, in the future, we're going to be uh, taking a trip to Mars, and that's that's very exciting. That's very much the modern day greatest and you know most hazardous and greatest and most dangerous adventure on which man has ever embarked. And Mars will very much be that. And that that is our next episode. I predict it will come out, considering your schedule and my schedule, uh, January. And I could say probably. I could say definitely. We'll, yeah, do, definitely. we'll, do, we'll do that definitely in January. January. We'll do that in January. So that's going to be a fascinating road to go down. And it's not just Mars, but Elon Musk, which is, I think, a very hot topic right now. And I think it could be, I think it could be really fascinating and excited to do that. And after that, I think we're going to take a trip to the outer boundaries of the solar system. We focus a lot on the solar system. And I think the final episode before we start going out into interstellar space and talking about black holes and time dilation and quasars and pulsars and all these crazy things, I think uh, Pluto is a subject that we we should address. People always had questions and comments about Pluto when I worked at the Fisk Planetarium. So I was inspired to write a Pluto episode. And so Mars and Pluto, if you're, if you're looking at the, the itinerary for the future, where we're going, it's going to be Mars and Pluto. So, and I was trying to get at this earlier, but just so that our listeners know kind of what our, where we're thinking of formatting the shows that this, we're, we're currently in the middle of season one of what you want to make of universe university do any podcasts really have seasons oh yeah yeah yeah. oh i didn't know that okay so but i i like the way that you thought of this is that you kind of constructed each season to have common themes throughout them sure so we're coming up probably toward after the next two episodes towards the end of this of this first season that we've been doing sure um, and we're, we're still trying to think of, um, ways to, to round out the season, things that we could put out there. Um, it's all going to be based off of our listen- listenership and what you guys are into. Once again, we have an email that is in the description box. We always want you guys to reach out to us, share with us, comment, recommend it to other people if you like our program. Uh, but by all means, if you guys have some ideas and say, hey, we really want you to do an episode about fill in the blank, by all means, send us an email, leave a comment, just share that with us and we will you know, dive right in. Or if you work in this world and are interested in, in sharing any new research or any anything that you're working on and are willing to do an interview with us, we would love to have you on the show as well. Absolutely. And that's something you, you talk about looking forward. That's something you can look forward to in future after talks that uh, could be as soon as uh, the next episode where we're going to be sitting down with different guests from this community 
don't expect us to be chatting with Elon Musk anytime soon, but uh, people who have worked in astronomy, people who have worked in uh, human spaceflight, to, you know, we're reaching out to those people right now, and we want to have those people uh, on our program as guests. So in the future, we'll be having after talks with more than just my producer and I. We'll be having um, other guests on and hopefully turn this after talk format into something that's a little more interesting, a little more engaging than just listening to my producer and I shoot the shit. And <laughs> yeah. in one of these interviews that I saw, somebody who worked on Project Orion said, if I could give it odds... This person said, if I could give it, if I wanted to play the odds, I would say within the next 50 to 100 years, it will fly in space. my producer and I at Universe University, we'd like to wish you Happy New Year. As always, our email is listed in the description box of each episode, and we encourage you to reach out to us. You can look forward to us coming back in January, exploring the brain of Elon Musk and the planet Mars.